everybody, and welcome to the seventh episode of the podcast. I can't believe we're already this far into the journey. Before I start today's episode, I want to give a little bit of context of what these next few episodes are going to look like because they're all deeply intertwined with each other. Today, we're going to be discussing the history of policing in America and the Black Lives Matter movement. Next week, we'll be discussing the war on drugs, and the week after that is an episode dedicated to the criminal justice system and the prison system. Finally, I'm going to wrap up the podcast with our 10th episode, an episode that I'm calling Where Do We Go From Here? The topics discussed over the next few weeks are so, so important. However, they're also very graphic and can be hard to listen to. For that reason, I recommend that you listen to this with that in mind and take the time and space to process what we discuss. Similarly, I recommend that you take what you learned from this episode and learn more about it, especially in the context of the present day and from sources that are written or created by Black people. With that, let's get into today's episode, The History of Policing in America. George Floyd, Michael Brown, Breonna Taylor, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland. These are just five of the countless Black people who have been killed at the hands of police in this country. Five innocent lives that were ended at the hands of police. Police violence is a problem in our country and has been for longer than most of us have been alive. In today's episode, we're going to talk about all the progress that has been made, movements like Black Lives Matter and the people behind them. But we also have to address the root of the issue. And to get to the root of why Black people are disproportionately shot and killed and injured by police, we have to go back and look at the history of policing in America. Just so you know, there are entire books and movies that cover this topic, so we definitely will not completely cover it in its entirety during this episode. But many of those sources are written and created by Black voices. So for more information, more information about what I'm talking about today, I'd absolutely recommend that you turn to those sources because they have a different perspective and they're way more in-depth and eloquent than I could ever be. Over the last 400 years, Black people have been criminalized in this country. This is something that has been discussed in previous episodes and it will continue to come up as we talk about the war on drugs and the criminal justice system. The history of policing in America is long, and in many cases, brutal. Policing has been a part of our country since before the United States was even its own country. Many historians point to the Boston Watch, a neighborhood watch group from the mid-1600s, as the first informal form of policing in America. However, some of the first police forces in America were created with the intention of controlling slaves. They would come to be known as slave patrols, and white men, by law, had to serve in these patrols. In the South, these patrols enforced the slave codes, which were laws that pretty much controlled every aspect of enslaved people's lives. These slave patrols were designed to put power in the hands of white people to control black people. Not only were black people enslaved, they now had to have documents showing that they were allowed to be coming and going whenever they went places they didn't belong. And in many states, the duties of these slave patrols were written into law. For example, in 1835, Louisiana's slave patrol statute declared that slave patrols were to arrest any slave, with or without a permit, caught in the woods with any fire or torch. And the punishment, if slaves were found in the woods? Corporal punishment. The reason for this specific statute was a fear, 
by white people of an uprising. They feared that slaves would burn things down. There was no Bill of Rights at this point, and even if there was, it would hardly apply to black people. So the only way white people knew to protect themselves from this perceived threat was immediate physical punishment. So very early on in the history of policing, really before it even became an institution, we see that the idea is white men having the ability to patrol black people and enact physical punishment on the scene. And ever since its inception, policing as an institution has been in place to uphold white supremacy while marginalizing, oppressing, and even harming innocent people of color. This is where we get into the rest of today's episode, Black Lives Matter and Police Brutality. This week, I read When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Kahn Cullors and Asha Bendel. It is an incredible read, and I would highly recommend it to every single one of you. Patrice is one of the three women who began the Black Lives Matter movement, and the book is a memoir, moving through her childhood and early work as an organizer into her adult life and the creation of Black Lives Matter. She describes the way she saw her two brothers and their friends get harassed by police when none of them was over 14 and, quote, all of whom were doing absolutely nothing but talking, unquote. She describes the way she can't imagine living without a fear of the police. She describes the way her brother, who has schizoaffective disorder, was arrested and jailed time and time again, and each time he was criminalized and abused by jail guards and doctors and police. She describes the way in which black and brown men and boys are targeted by police simply for existing. For walking down the street with Skittles for their little brother, for failing to signal a lane change, for selling cigarettes. All across the country, men are killed for driving while black, walking while black, existing while black. And all across the country, their killers are going free, being acquitted of all charges, not being held accountable for the pain they have caused and the lives they have ended. While the stories of Patrice's childhood are gut-wrenching and shed a light on the horrors that people of color have to deal with every single day, what I want to focus on today is the way she describes starting the Black Lives Matter movement in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012. Patrice argues that the criminalization and isolation of Black people start in schools. Black children are much more at risk of suspension. They're suspended at nearly four times the rate of white students, despite similar behavior patterns. They're taught that they have little value, that they shouldn't hope and dream for their future. In many countries around the nation, they're incredibly undereducated. Patrice argues that a judge said that Brock Turner, the Stanford rapist who got a sentence of only six months in jail, couldn't make it in prison. That prison wasn't for him. Patrice responds, quote, but it was made for Richie, for Monty, for my father. My God, is that not reason enough to shut it down? Unquote. We have created a society. We are content in a society that views white men who committed a crime as less criminal than black men who did not. We are content in a society in which Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old child, was killed while walking with a can of Arizona iced tea and a pack of Skittles as a treat for his little brother, simply because he was black. And we are content in a society in which the man who killed Trayvon Martin is acquitted of every single charge against him. 
Patrice goes on to describe the harm of police in communities of color far better than I ever could. Quote, police, the little literal progeny of slave catchers, meant harm to our community and the race or class of any one officer, nor the good heart of an officer could not change that. No isolated acts of decency could wholly change an organization that became an institution that was created not to protect, but to catch, control, and kill us, unquote. She goes on to state some staggering statistics. In the state of California, a human being is killed by a police officer roughly every 72 hours. 63% of these people killed by police are Black or Latinx. Black people, who make up just 6% of California's population, are targeted and killed at five times the rate of whites and three times the rate of Latinx. Patrice says that one of the central tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement is the idea that Black people deserve, quote, another knowing, the knowing that comes when you assume your life will be long, will be vibrant, will be healthy, unquote. This line really affected me. As a white woman, I've never considered that my life would be anything but long and healthy, and that the police and doctors were on my side, would do whatever they could to help me. I've been planning for college, for a job, for my wedding, for my future ever since I was a little girl. This is a knowing that I've taken for granted my entire life. I never really considered it, definitely not in the way that black men and women and children have to fear every single time they step out of their homes. And sometimes, like in the case of Breonna Taylor, even when they're in their own homes. Patrice's main argument is that when they say Black Lives Matter, they mean that Black men and women and children deserve that knowing and shelter and decent food and love. Throughout her entire memoir, Patrice mentions and considers the countless Black lives that have ended as a result of police. One specific case that I would like to focus on is the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 which is described in the documentary, Whose Streets? Michael Brown was an 18-year-old black boy who got stopped walking down the street unarmed. He got shot by a police officer with his hands up. Two of the shots went into the top of his head. He was left in the street for four and a half hours, and during that time, his mother wasn't even allowed to identify her own son. His neighbors, the people who witnessed this atrocity, said that it made them think of a lynching, in Ferguson, which is in one of the five poorest zip codes in Missouri, black residents say that there is a constant denial of humanity. In response to Brown's killing, Ferguson residents took to the streets in protest, some of which did turn violent. The documentary argues that to white people and to law enforcement, a building burning is worse than an innocent black person getting shot because that building served white people and that black body did not. Time and time again, in the Ferguson protests and others, police have put property over people. Furthermore, it's significant, to me anyway, that at predominantly white, non-race-related protests, such as the women's marches all over the country, police are helpful and kind, but in Ferguson and countless others, they are aggressive and they are violent. In Ferguson, the police use chemical warfare that isn't even supposed to be used on U.S. soil. To me, that makes it sound like it's less about where you are and more about who you are. 
The chants in Ferguson included, we are human, and if you are not questioning normal, you are not paying attention. The black citizens of Ferguson are over-incarcerated and undereducated and over-policed, and the problems that faced the city did not end when the Ferguson October protests that drew in allies from all over the country did. As one man said, I gotta fucking live here when they leave. Ultimately, the grand jury didn't indict Officer Darren Wilson, the officer who killed Michael Brown. This drew calls for reconsidering policing as an institution and led to more violence and protests. And as one black man said, black people can't clock out from this shit. As we've seen, they are born black and they live their lives black and are forced each and every day to wake up and face the consequences that they must live with just for being born with a certain color of skin. Ultimately, the citizens of Ferguson believe that the power lies with young people, that change is going to come from the kids who are raised seeing their parents fight for change. The uprising in Ferguson occurred over half a decade ago now, and Trayvon Martin's killing was even longer ago. However, the issue of police brutality has not gone away in that time. Just this summer, we saw a video of George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, and calling for his mom as the life was choked out of him over eight excruciating minutes. As Angela Davis said, the video of the tragedy made us the unwitting audience of a lynching. This episode has been sad, but these stories can't be ignored just because they're hard to listen to. In the end, the point I want to make is that Black lives do matter. They've always mattered, and they always will matter. However, I want to make sure that we all understand what that means. It's not just a phrase. It means that Black lives deserve to live in decent, livable housing, with working appliances, where they feel safe and comfortable and are surrounded by the people they love. It means that Black lives have the right to the same criminal justice system that white people experience, a justice system that gives them the benefit of the doubt rather than the highest sentence possible for even the smallest of crimes. It means that black lives have the right to go out in the street, let their kids and friends and moms and dads go out in the street without the fear that they will be killed at the hands of a police officer simply for existing while black. As white people, we can never understand the struggles that black people of all ages and genders face every single day. What we can do is make an effort to be effective allies. We can use our voices for change while ensuring that black voices aren't being drowned out as a result. We can educate ourselves on these issues and do everything in our power to ensure that they don't happen again. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I know it was tough at times, but the least we can do as allies, what we must do as allies, is educate ourselves, even when it's not easy. As always, more resources are linked on the blog at peytonprooks.wixsite.com podcast. I hope that you'll join me again next week when we discuss the war on drugs.